This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio. Welcome to Leadership in Action, Sirius XM's business radio powered by the Wharton School, University of Pennsylvania. I'm Mike Yuseem, Director of the Center for Leadership here, and I'm with my good friend, Ann Greenhall, who is the Deputy Director of the McNulty Leadership Program, also here at the Wharton School. You know where to find us. We're on Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132. You can find us on Twitter at SXM Business. And today we have a, a very distinguished guest, David Gergen. David, great to have you here on the program. It's a privilege to be with you, Mike, and with Anne. Thank you. Uh, wonderful to have you here. And, and for uh, the relatively few people who don't know David Gergen from CNN and many other programs that they've been watching in recent years, David, uh, going back a few years, has been an advisor to four presidents in two different parties served in the White House with uh, four presidents. We'll be talking about that. He is uh, with the Kennedy School uh, Center for Public Leadership, helped uh, create that, and uh, is, uh, well, the author of a well-known book called Eyewitness to Power, The Essence of Leadership from Nixon to Clinton. That tells you two of the presidents um, who, who he did serve, has a new book underway, it should be out next year. He was um, uh, for a while at McNeil Lehrer, the News Hour, been a public commentator, public affairs uh, observer uh, par excellence for many years. You'll often see him on CNN, as I said before. David, it's great to have you here. And let me just begin with kind of an obvious question. And that is, how did you get into this business? Because as I recall, you were aspiring to be a major league baseball player. <laughs> uh, well, you know where he, you, <laughs> you, you, you know where the lead is. <laughs> I was a, when I was a teenager, I, I, I played a lot of sports. I was grew up in North Carolina. And uh, that's what you sort of did uh, there. And uh, I was pretty good baseball player, pretty, pretty good pitcher. And we got to, you know, championships and, and various leagues and that sort of thing. But when I was about 15, 16, 17 years old, I can't remember exactly when it was. I think it was when my, between my ninth and 10th year in school, um, I grew about six inches in one year. And, and I went from being tall to ridiculously tall. <laughs> and I also lost my coordination. I became an extraordinarily awkward person for a while. Um, and, and it was in that, that spring, early spring, uh, that I went and tried for the tried out for the high school baseball team, thinking this will be the way to I can I can show them I can do this and this will be the way to to, to riches in baseball forever. Uh, so I went we we did our first workout in the gymnasium because it was cold, and I it was a, I had a pitcher catcher situation and I pitched a few to him and everything seemed to go smoothly and then I said I'm okay now let's up to get the real speed out here so I th- I threw one pretty darn hard and. Unfortunately, I lost control. It went through a window over to the side. It wasn't just any window. It was a window on the second floor. <laughs> <laughs> and with that, 
my dream of a baseball life evaporated. But uh, I started spending more time as a sports writer for our local Durham Morning Herald, which we had, a, you know, we had about a circulation, about 35,000, which, but I, I wrote up sports stories for a few years, and then they, they, they transferred me over to the news desk, and I started that with obituaries, and then, then I moved up to doing sort of going to City Hall in the summers and going to see the county manager and that sort of thing. Um, yeah, but my, my crowning glory in 1959, Khrushchev came to Washington, D.C. to see President Eisenhower, as you may recall. Um, and um, my newspaper asked me to go and card cover it. And so I went as a correspondent for the Durham Morning Herald to cover Khrushchev and was there in press briefings with him and little gaggles of things. And I really got the bug for public life. I, you know, it was extraordinarily interesting. It was exciting. I went off to college that year and um, John Kennedy came and spoke on campus. And, you know, then we had civil rights and I just got drawn in into being, wanting to be where the action was. David, that's great. And um, when it comes to the pinnacle of political engagement, it's pretty hard to beat the White House. Yeah. And uh, I think at a fairly young age, you found yourself inside the White House during the Nixon administration. How did that happen? <laughs> well, um, I went on from college, I went to Yale, and I went off to, after a year of graduate studies, when I decided PhD was not my forte, um, I uh, then went to law school. And coming out of law school, uh, I went in the Navy for three and a half years. I was during the Vietnam War, and I was, in a, I was assigned to a ship coming out of, out of Japan, home ported in Sasebo, and we went to Vietnam, went to other places. But uh, the point of all of this is I got a call in the middle of the night uh, from an old roommate who was working in the West Wing of the White House, who said, can you come back? Can we get you reassigned to come back to help us reform the draft? They had just fired Lewis Hershey, who was the head of the draft. Uh, and uh, it, they were running a random lottery system. Uh, and it was first year. It was a voluntary system Richard Nixon put into place. And they, this random lottery in the first year, Lewis Hershey, who was then the director, was asked to run the random lottery. And he got a group of capsules, so little plastic capsules. He had 365 of them. Yep. And he put January 1 in the first capsule, January 2 in the second, but put them in a bowl. So January was at the bottom, gradually worked up December at the top, stirred it up a little bit. And the day of the lottery, pulled it out, reached in. If you got well, your number determined whether you went to Vietnam or not, and you had a low number, you're going to Vietnam. First thing to pull out of there, December 15th. Then they pull it on November 8th. And all the late months of the year were on top and all the early months of the year were on the bottom, <laughs> and which was to totally not random. So some, some graduate school students, I think the University of Chicago or someplace, uh, they did some analysis and they determined it was not random and they sued. Uh, and at that point, Hershey lifted their, their draft deferments. He sent them to Vietnam to close, down, to close them down. It was a rough time, Mike, as you know. Yep. So at any event, I came in as a, with a group of a half a dozen young uh, guys who were asked to work with the new director to reform the draft and to start with the random lottery system. And we, our first assignment was, how do you run a random lottery that's believable? And we, we wound up talking to a guy named Professor Tukey at Princeton. He was a great statistician. Yep. And he gave us the advice. He said, you take the capsules, you randomly take the days of the year and put them through a computer to get random assignments of the order in which you put them in a bowl and that will be flawless. And I said, uh, can I make two friendly uh, uh, amendments to this process? And they said, okay, what are they? I said, well, first of all, I think 
it's still not completely convincing. If, if some senator's son, you know, gets number 360, it's, it, it, there are people going to think this is fixed. So what I suggest we do is do two bowls, one with numbers and one with letters, and draw simultaneously from the two and then match them up. Nobody can say that's fixed. So that's number one. They said, fine. I said, listen, the second thing is, and I shouldn't say this in these day and age. I said, we need to get two blonde, innocent looking girls in short skirts and let them do the drawing up there on the stage. <laughs> and it was the first Vanna White. The, uh, but these, these two, these young women, it was totally convinced. We never had any more questions about random lottery. We did have a lot of questions, obviously, about Vietnam. Yep. Yeah. Uh, I was we we did a lot of work to try to close down the, the loopholes and make the draft a fairer system. And um, I think we made some progress on that. But it was a it was a long haul. But anyway, that introduced me to the White House because we, we were working closely with the friend who called me who was in the working in the West Wing. So there you were. So, there David, was. let me just uh, take a breather here. We need to sure. remind our listeners. This is Leadership in Action, Business Radio, Sirius XM Channel 132. I'm your host, Mike Husim. I'm here with my good friend and colleague, Ann Holm. And our guest right now is David Gergen, professor of public service at Harvard University and a senior political analyst for CNN. Ann, why don't you jump in? Oh, thank you. And David, really an honor and a pleasure to have this chance to speak with you. The, the honor is mine. Oh, thank you. I'm, I'm wondering if you could speak to your experience in the Navy and how that informed your career. Good. Well, I have to tell you, I think it was one of the best um, uh, periods, best chapters of my life. Um, I had gone to school in the North, I, you know, I came out of North Carolina, sort of, sort of rural part of the state. My dad was a professor at Duke. Um, and but I then went to Yale and then I went to Harvard. And, you know, going to these two elite institutions, you're very much um, separated out from daily life. And it made a huge difference in my life to come out of, to come out of law school, did pretty well, went in the Navy. And within a week after graduating with honors from Harvard, I was handed a toothbrush, a couple of toothbrushes and asked to clean the latrines. Uh, in a naval setting at, at, at Officer Candidate School in Newport, Rhode Island. And they really knocked you down two or three pegs, which was healthy. But very importantly, I got a, I eventually went up a, with a, a team of around 50 sailors who were enlisted that I was responsible for. And they taught, just, you just had to grow up a little bit. You were responsible for these young men. Some of them had drug problems and most of them had girlfriend problems. Um, you know, one of them committed suicide. It was, and, but it was working with these guys and trying to build connections. And I think one of the proudest moments was they, when, I, when I left, they gave me a big send off. They'd gone out and gotten a lot of Japanese stuff. And it was really, they were very kind about it. But I, but I came out of that, that was two years well, well, well spent. And um, I, I was in for another year to go back on the draft. I tried to, I asked for duty. Once I was on the ship for a couple of years, I asked for duty and would they please send me to Vietnam? I'd like to work on Stars and Stripes, which was a newspaper there because I wanted to see the action. I wanted to be where this, I knew my generation was, you know, a lot of lives were being lost in my generation in Vietnam. And I wanted to be there and they wouldn't, my captain just refused, but I did get to Washington to be work on the draft. Oh, Mike, do, do I have time for just to follow up? Of course, up? go for it. <laughs> Thank you, Mike. 
Uh, David, if I may, similar question. How about law school? How did that inform your career? Uh, well, I think my professors would say it didn't inform it at all. <laughs> 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 I, I, um, the, the, I, I must tell you, the first year of law school was the best academic year, best academic experience I've had. Because it was, you really had to figure it out for yourself. And every, and you've got to map it out. And every case that you study, it's a case study method. Every case that you has a point that it establishes on a, on a canvas, you might say. And when you start out, you've just got lots of points and they don't seem to add up to anything. It's just like pointillism. It just doesn't seem to add up to anything. But gradually over the course of the year, things take shape. You see, okay, I understand why this point is tied to that one and to that one over there. And it's an intellectual breakthrough. You, you can't be taught that stuff. It's just working on it on your own with encouragement and, and a kick in the ass from the professors. Uh, it was really, um, it, was a, it was sort of a breakthrough and it gave me a lot of more self-confidence uh, than I had before. And, and being in law school too, they, they cold called you a lot. And they, that was really rough. It sort of, you know, I, I perfected the art of getting the last seat in the house too far away for the professor to see. <laughs> That's very good. That serves you well now in your academic, <laughs> in any academic role. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's also, I, you know, I, I, I now teach and I, and I, with my, the most exhilarating part of what I do right now is working with the kids. It's great. I believe that, Mike. Yeah. David, just to play though on the terrain that Anne has us thinking about, yeah. you were initially after the baseball phase of your mm. earlier career, <laughs> thinking about becoming a journalist, you became a journalist, you became a writer, and yet you actually ended up in the sort of the center of the action. So what drew you from reporting about political life to being part of political life? Well, it, it, it was, again, it was, uh, it, it had an accidental quality to it. Uh, the last year, as I said, I was, uh, you know, there working on the draft. And then I, that was, and my time of service in the Navy it was coming to an end. Uh, and I was trying to figure out what to do next. I wasn't sure where, what I wanted to do. I didn't want to go practice law. I tried a couple of that couple of summers. And as much as I love the study of law, I thought the practice was, I, it just didn't sing to me. So I was uncertain what to do. And I was in the midst of talking with the University of North Carolina to an institute of government there about coming and being on the faculty, teaching in the law school and being, being a member of the Institute of Government and thinking about running for office in North Carolina. Uh, and while I was in the midst of those conversations, I got a call from the White House um, from my friend who, who's, who, Ray Price, who was the chief speechwriter at that time, was looking for an assistant. He'd just gotten that job. Mm -hmm. And they called me and said, would you like to, would you like to be considered for this? And I said, well, you know, I voted for Hubert Humphrey, and, but I, I like Nixon's foreign policy. I don't think much of his domestic, but I like his foreign policy a lot. Um, and they said, why don't you come in for a conversation and we'll, have, we'll talk. So I did, and I went in and Ray and I spent an hour together. We really hit it off. I thought he was terrific. Uh, he apparently liked me. And we agreed that I would spend one year there. And knowing that I voted for Humphrey, I was sort of impressed that they would do that. I mean, there were some people who hated me, didn't want me there, with good reason. Um, and uh, But that that brought me in. And within a, within a year and a half, I was named head of this team of 50 hmm. speechwriters and researchers. 
And um, uh, Ray went over to be, um, he was sort of a super person there. He, was, uh, he went independent and I ran the team. Um, and that was a growing up experience too, for obvious reasons. And I went, went through Watergate and um, which was a rough, rough period. It was very much like, I felt this must be what it's like to be in a Marine Corps. Um, but um, it, it was, a, it, again, a, gr a growing up experience. And I just, I, I must tell you, in the midst of all these, quote, glamorous jobs, the, 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 those were not my most satisfying jobs growing up. My most satisfying jobs were actually back in North Carolina. Hmm. Uh, we had a governor named Terry Sanford, a progressive governor. He was our John Kennedy. And the, the South was aflame at that point on the civil rights issues. And Terry Sanford created a, what he called a good neighbor council, North Carolina good neighbor council. And I came back to do a summer and I asked to be to work for the, for the council. And they assigned me. I was the only staff member to uh, to the man who ran it. The guy who 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 ran the Good Neighbor Council was a hard nosed Flint Flinty guy who grown up as a farmer in North Carolina was director of the budget and was very conservative and anti civil rights. And he had a conversion when he saw and he came to understand and he became an outspoken advocate for civil rights. And we traveled the state together. I was his driver and his and his. Uh, and, and his policy guy and everything all wrapped into one. But I worked for him in the summers for three years. And I must tell you, Mike, it was the most satisfying experience I've had in public life because you, we actually felt we made a difference. It, it was my home community. You know, you're working for your home community, which gives you a certain kind of uh, uh, satisfaction in and of itself. And it was a good thing to do. And it was, it was, um, Right, I, I really got badly. Uh, we, we, I was in a very threatening situation once when I thought I was going to get killed. Hmm. Um, but it, we, we, we emerged from it, and it, it really settled me that that experience, in many ways, was more influential than the White House experience. But they, they all over time sort of joined together. So, David, you you said it well in a sentence. What draws so many people to politics, of course, which is making a difference. Yes, that, absolutely. Having that purpose. Yeah. Let me just remind everybody that we're in conversation here with David Gergen, the founding director of the Center for Public Leadership at the Harvard Kennedy School. And David, uh, with a few minutes to go before we do take a, a station break, uh, Witnessing four presidents close in, yeah. beginning with uh, Richard Nixon and going through, uh, well, Ronald Reagan, uh, uh, Jerry Ford, and then Bill Clinton, and you've had contact with all the presidents since then. What do you think listeners could learn from your observations about what made a difference as they exercise their presidential duties? What in watching them in action would you say, look, this is what seems to work. This is what gets in the way of effective leadership, whether it's a country, a company, or a county. Sure. I, I, Mike, I'm increasingly drawn to some very old-fashioned concepts, you know, stretch, stretching back to uh, Athens and, and Rome. And that is that the single most important quality a, a leader needs, I don't care where you are, is character. And people that people have to, if, especially if you're going to ask people to do difficult things or risky things, they have to know that they can trust you. They ha have to know that you're reliable, that what you say on Wednesday is going to be the same thing you say on Friday. 
and it's usually you, you don't change your mind all the time. Uh, they have to know that you know what the hell you're talking about. Um, so that they, they again, it's a it's a risk factor. Um, uh, but if you if you can convince people, I think that's the key to building a followership. And now there are a lot of other qualities that go with it. And I'm looking forward very much, Mike, to your your new book this summer, uh, The Edge about what the edge that people need, I think. And I think you're right about it through your interviews and portraits of the, of the people you, you uh, described there in the book so well. Um, but I think there are other qualities that come along with character. Uh, but if you go all the way back to the founding of the country, who was the most important leader that got the country started? It was George Washington. What, did, what distinguished George Washington? Well, he was a very good, he was a very, very good soldier and a very good you know, a very good uh, general. Um, even though he lost six out of the first eight battles, he turned out to be a good general. But the most important thing he did for the country was to leave, was to give up power, hmm. you know, at the at the end of the war. And then he gave gave up power again in his presidency. He, you know, he wanted to leave. Uh, he, as Gary Wills puts it, he was a virtuoso of resignations. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and but it but it was in giving power back it 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 cemented in the foundations of our democracy. Great, Anne. Why don't you jump in? We've got a few minutes. We do we before we take our break here. Oh, well, you're maybe going in the direction that I hope you would, uh, David. If I may just ask you, you spoke about the meaningful experience you had in North Carolina. Yeah. The most glamorizing, most glamorous job is not necessarily the most satisfying. Exactly. If, if we look to your White House career, was, was there a moment that stands out when you felt that you were making the kind of difference that you recall from your earlier experience in, um, in local government? Well, I, there was no moment that I can remember that was as, um, I thought as transformative as what was going on in my state. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I actually thought some of our greatest accomplishments in the White House were stopping things, not starting things. Mm. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I remember the, the uh, talking to my friend Jonathan, who was there in the West Wing. And after I'd been there a year or so, we were commenting on, on some of the craziness around us. And he said, just like, there are all these bats flying around inside this building. If they ever, one of them ever gets out, we're going to be in terrible trouble. With <laughs> 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 <That's great. laughs> but it was like, you know, there were crazy ideas floating around. And, uh, you know, to go over and bomb the Brookings Institution. I, I had a captain like that in the Navy. I was a damage control officer, which for, and for a big ship, and damage control officer ship, by the way, was very good preparation for government. The, um, <laughs> uh, but, but I, you know, there were just so many times that my captain on that ship would would send an order down. And you got you know, worry about this this. A bathroom toilet over here, or worry about this shower head or worry about the heat or the, 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 whatever it was. And he would, he'd, he'd call me and say, do this, or do that. And then he, then I never hear from him again about anything I did. And I realized it was almost instinctive. He just had to be in action. So every time he sent me a note to do something, I'd put it in a drawer. I wouldn't do anything. And if he called me again, I'd do it. But if he didn't call me again, it never happened. <laughs> and and that, I think that there are times in leadership, it really does make a difference 
to have somebody who says, that's not such a good idea. So wonderful, David, thank you. Yeah. All right, David, uh, very quickly before we uh, do take this break that I indicated a minute ago. Sure. Um, looking back at the four administrations in which you did serve, um, stopping bad policy, preventing uh, mistakes in public, really important, but on the affirmative side, sure. what, would you, what would you point out was one of your more proud moments for what you did achieve, did create legislation you helped write, a speech you helped prepare? Well, I was I was uh, very deeply involved in the Clinton administration to get a couple of things done, starting with NAFTA, um, which was a bi it was one of the last bipartisan uh, steps we've taken, uh, but it was a, a very very important one. And we also got Social Security reform done in the early uh, '80s. Now it was I was proud about that. I wasn't a I wasn't a prime mover, but I was very involved with it. Um, and uh, I'm, I must tell you, I thought we succeeded, and Nixon deserves most of the credit, along with Henry Kissinger, but I really did think there was progress made on the international front. Hmm. You know, splitting China apart from Russia really, was, as, as a strategic matter, made a huge difference. And I think, it, yeah, and it accelerated the end of the Cold War. Um, I have some fear today that, and, and having these first, last, opening days of uh, the Biden administration. For, uh, Joe Biden has done a lot of good things, but I must say, I got a little worried when he went after Russia, Putin, at the same time his Secretary of State went after the Chinese, yeah. uh, and both of them sort of in a very public way. Both of them need to be admonished. No, both need to be held in, in check, but you don't want to drive each other, both of them into each other's arms. <laughs> You don't want to have them see that there's much to be gained from them working together against the West. Yep, great point, great point. Let me just say uh, about looking back on the years there, one, one thing I should mention that really did matter uh, was that uh, President Clinton called call me and asked me if I would come work for him uh, after I'd worked for three Republicans and he was a Democrat. And he, he wanted me, Mac McClarty, his chief of staff asked me to come with to because he was in a ditch. He, he was in the early stages of his presidency. He, he, it didn't catch well. He was, he was tired, overly tired, and he went into a ditch, and he called me to get him out of the ditch, in effect. Mm -hmm. And so the real question was how, and this is what's important. Uh, I had learned from the Reagan days, and I tried to apply this to, Cl to Clinton, that you, you, you shouldn't try to change a political leader from who or she is. If that's a losing game. The, the, what you should do is try to draw out the best of the political leader, and because that's what's going to make it work, if it's going to work at all. And we applied that to Clinton. Rather than trying to change him, tell him, oh, you got to do this, Mr. President, you got to be do this, you need to do this or this, and your public presentations you're not doing. What we did was we essentially surrounded him with comfort and with uh, respect and let him regain over time his confidence. He'd lost his confidence. And the only way you can get that back is to go out and hit the ball again and get back up at the plate and take another swing. But, you know, and, and Bill Clinton got himself out of the dish eventually. It made a major, major difference. Within a few months, he was back up and he was running and he was running things. And had he not gotten out of there, I think it would have been a real mess. Um, but what was key to that was being supportive of him as he was as a human being, as a leader. 
And that's one of the, Mike, you and I keep looking for one of the, what's the magic about this, about being in leadership? And, you know, and that was one piece of it. Yeah, but just to reinforce the point, a, a chief executive of a very large company who's actually going to be on campus later this spring has offered almost an identical formulation for how he works with the many thousands of people who work for him. He says his task is to find the best in the people there that are there and help them get it to a new level, yeah. spending more time and saying, here's what you're good at, do more of that as opposed yep. to hacking away at what's um, yep. less desirable. So absolutely, same absolutely. Point. All right, Anne, let's get you into the conversation. Uh, thank you, Mike. David, a follow-up on this, you've played a role as an advisor. Yes. And you come to this role with uh, many wonderful credentials. And yet credentials only take you so far. At some point, you have to persuade the person you're advising that you are credible, you know what you're talking about, and your advice is sound. <laughs> yeah. how, how do you do that? Uh, patiently. <laughs> Uh, you, it, it, I don't think you can come in and, uh, uh, well, the, the, the person who I think put together the best White House team in recent years was Reagan. Uh, he was more conservative than I was, but he put together a good team. And the art of that team was he brought four or five people with him from California whom he absolutely trusted. Mm -hmm. They're part of his inner circle. It was a Baker, Meese, Deaver, Meese and Deaver, both California. Um, and so he had people that he was very comfortable with, but he also brought people he did not know very well. Jim Baker was the lead on that. Um, and Baker, Baker run two campaigns against him. And after the second campaign, the day after, Reagan asked him to be his chief of staff. After the guy was in, ran two campaigns against him. He, he was willing to take the risk of bringing in people he thought were really good. And he, because he was comfortable enough in his own skin to know that he was, you know, he had a, that that he was reasonably confident he'd do it okay, but he wanted some, he wanted some people who were really strong with him. I went in with Baker. That's how I went to that final that the Clinton White House. But it did help me help me understand it's the it's the quality of the team. It's the mix of the team. Team. It's just I I can't remember what what book is in, but it makes the argument that if you back in nineteen eighty four. It was the American Olympic basketball team. The you they could they could for the first time could go and get out get professional players to, to play, and the coach got the very best player at each position to come and join the team. But they weren't a team; they were all just a bunch of stars, and they didn't want to play well together. They lost in semifinals to Lithuania. <laughs> they went down to Lithuania. And it, it goes to this point is team building is about more than um, simply getting some named people. It's people who can work well together, can trust each other and can, and can really support the boss in a very, in a way that you channel this, you, you need to challenge thinking inside. You know, you group think as we learned from all the way back in Vietnam can be terribly debilitating, but, but you need to, you need to challenge, but once the decision's made, you need to support. David, maybe just one follow-up. Yeah. You have, again, spent a career advising. As you look back on your career, have you ever thought, you know, gee, I wonder, should is this is this the path? Or should I have done the role itself? Should I have aspired to the very roles I was advising? No, I, I felt comfortable with that. Once, it, once I had been away, once I left North Carolina, didn't take that job after the Navy, 
I, I my political prospects were going back to North Carolina were slim to none, mm. uh, and which was fine. I you know I think you have to make choices in life, and I, you know I, I, I listen. I've been very privileged. It's a privilege for any citizen to work in the White House, and for me to have work in four White Houses, you can imagine how grateful I am for that. David, you've Thank also you. you've also traveled the world. You've met um, many leaders in many countries. A slightly odd, oddball question on that: If you could sit down for lunch with any leader, let's make it of the twentieth or twenty-first century, who would you choose to be your first fellow guest at lunch? And what would you like to ask the person, given what you know about the person? Mm, it'd be a hard call between. Uh, uh, Churchill and Roosevelt. Uh, there are some obviously, you know, I, I have enormous respect for Martin Luther King and for John Kennedy, and there have been others. Uh, I, I thought, you know, when when you figure out how to who, who what happened in World War II and and this why why did the country why did the world have become such a mess in the first half of the 20th century as it did with World War One, the Depression, and everything else. Um, John Keegan, you'll remember the war historian, the Brit, we all admired so much. He said, you can, you, can, you can understand the history and find the history of the, first, of the first half of the 20th century if you study the lives of six men. Six men deter determined the course of history. Uh, one was Hitler, Mao Zedong, uh, Stalin, and, and uh, who was the fourth one? Lenin. And then, but yeah. there were two others. And if, if there were two others who saved the world, and that was Churchill and Roosevelt. It was a very close call as it was. But the, if the fourth, these were six major leaders, but four of them were in effect evil, evil leaders. Yep. <clears throat> so David, it's a segue to uh, a related question. Uh, we're in a bit of a mess at the moment for a lot yes. of reasons that everybody knows about. And where, where do you see the future being created in a way we'd like it to be created? Is it the current generation, the next generation? Is it all of us? I, I'm, I'm increasingly of the view that we, the baby boomers, I'm, I'm sort of a pre-baby boomer, but I consider myself sort of an honorary member of the tribe, um, that, that we haven't done, we haven't lived up to what we should have been as leaders. I think this, I think there've been too many leadership failures in the, in the baby, in the, um, baby boom population. And there are a lot of reasons for that, whether we were coddled when we were young, whether we were divided up by the Vietnam War, you know, it was an ax right down the middle of our generation, whether we were divided by sort of the cultures as they came apart. But in any event, I'm increasingly of the view, uh, Mike and Ann, that, that we, the future belongs to the millennials and perhaps Generation Z. And one of the most important missions we have in any university today is to prepare these young people and these new generations for lives of service and leadership. I, I think I think they have the capacity to to change the world, and and we see all over the world that that the door is now opening for young people to step in and make a difference. I mean, is anybody who thinks of and and these young people are sparking off each other. I mean, the very idea that an eight-year-old Greta Thunberg can get interested in in the climate. And then, but, but not knowing how to express it, around 16, 17 years old, she sees what's happening in Florida with the Parkland kids with, with who were trying to, to end gun violence. 
and she gets all her inspiration from them about how to how to do things in Sweden, and then becomes this force. At twenty one, she you know she's Time Magazine's Person of the Year. Yeah. By the time she says she's eighteen years old, so you know the world is open now to people, these young people, in ways it hasn't. And I think that we we ought to be encouraging young people to get in the arena and to serve and to understand life as service in the first year or two. I, I'm more and more in favor of national service, yeah. uh, a program that encourages. And by the way, in the new bill, the COVID relief bill has just been passed. There's an extra $1 billion in there for AmeriCorps. AmeriCorps yeah. And Jeff Coons, a senator from Delaware and a good friend of the president's, is leading the charge on this. He's got 16 senators, eight Democrats and eight Republicans to support national service. And, you know, I, I think we ought to be driving toward that. I've been very involved also in trying to get young veterans coming back from mm. Iraq and Afghanistan uh, to run for office. That's what the World War II generation did, and they were terrific leaders. I miss those guys, those, that, that generation a lot. And Mike, you must think about this a lot, how, yep. how yep. different they were. And that's what I think are one of our main missions in a leadership program at Wharton or a leadership program at the Kennedy School or wherever it may be, is, is really now to bear down and try to spot these people who are so have so much promise and help them along the way. Ann and I couldn't agree more. Yeah. I do need, Anne, before we hand the baton back to you briefly here before we conclude that this is Leadership in Action, Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Our guest today is David Gergen, Professor of Public Service at the Harvard Kennedy School. Anne, over to you. Uh, thank you, Mike. Uh, David, uh, undergraduate education is one of my passions yeah. and hobby horses. Mm. I know that you were at Yale as yes. an undergraduate. Can yep. you can you share what you studied as an undergrad? Sure. I I started out in political science, and I decided after taking intensive courses there and sort of like sophomore junior year, that it was very data driven, and I sort of thought it's I, I don't need to have snapshots of what today is. What I need to know is how did we get to today. And hey, what was the path that got us here? So, you know, Churchill used to say that people who can look further back can also see farther ahead. And I, and I think there's much wisdom in that view. So I switched majors in college in the middle of my junior year, switched into history. And I, and I took courses that summer to make up for the deficiency, um, and, but I graduated with honors in history. And it was, I, and so reading biographies and reading history, you know, John Meacham right now, I think is one of our best authors, but Doris Kearns Goodwin is a personal friend. The, you know, uh, Nancy Kane at our business school, I think her book on leadership in turbulent times is terrific. You know, I, I think we have some, we're really lucky right now. David McCullough's in his, you know, and his, his, he's older now. He, he doesn't have the snap that he did, but he still can write wonderful things. Um, so anyway, that's what I, that's what I love studying. Well, I ask you that because if we are aiming to prepare young people for a lifetime of service and leadership, yes. how do you ideally, how would you imagine their undergraduate education? What might that look like? That's a good question. I, I, I do think they ought to be involved in some effort in the liberal arts area or in science while they were undergraduates. They shouldn't just be in classrooms. They ought to set to undertake some larger project. I would hope that they would think about um, uh, working in the summers for a couple of nonprofits 
or, or preparing way, maybe taking a gap year uh, and making service part of that, that, that program. Um, I, we had two kids and both of them took gap years. And uh, I, I, uh, I thought my son would probably drink too much, too much beer and would not be long for, unless so he did a gap year, but he, he grew up and he's, he's in great shape now. Um, but I do think working for some of these social entrepreneurs uh, is is a really good way to go and get but getting out in the streets you it just don't don't do this in office buildings and campus libraries you got to get out in the streets and 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 see it but Mike does a lot of that in his work yeah um, absolutely yeah, you know and takes people to, to things and you know and McPherson does this at Princeton with with Gettysburg uh, I think those kind of experiences are um, are really invaluable um, I. I one of the reasons when I came out of the Clinton White House and had you know, one of these glamorous experiences, it was, it was only when I really got involved in a project with the Aspen Institute to go in with Bill Bradley and some other people to go into Southside Chicago and spend two or three days and go into LA and go into El Paso that, to really see what was going on in the country that it really awakens you to the crying needs that we're not meeting. And I don't think you can do that well from sitting in, in seclusion somewhere. I think it's really important to get out and, and see with your own eyes and talk to people and try to work on things together. You know, I, I'm very much a believer on this. One of the reasons I'm for national service is that it's going gonna, it's gonna to mix people of different backgrounds together. And that really helps them. You know, I... Um, it's been well said that, you know, one of the real differences in World War II was that you had a salt and stall from Massachusetts uh, saluting some Polish kid from Brooklyn. And that was healthy for all of us. It broke down those barriers. And I don't think we're going to break them down by playing filibuster games in Washington. I think it's got to be something more real. Wonderful. Thank you, David. Mike. Thank you, Ann. Yeah, David, we're getting close to the end. I'm sure. Squeezing a couple questions and then... Sure. Uh, David, just as a heads up, Ann and I, at the end of this program, uh, uh, we ordinarily do an after-action review. Uh, sure. Bringing out a couple of points that we'd like listeners to really hang on to and think about. Oh, that's good. We're, we're going to ask you to join that and offer Okay. Final. Well, I mostly want to hear you now. Okay. So, <laughs> okay. well, we're coming to that in just a minute. Uh, two questions okay. before we get there. Uh, you've primarily worked in with those in the, in public service. Right. Uh, uh, lead the center right. of public uh, leadership. But you've also had extensive experience uh, with the private sector. Uh, you've worked, I know, um, for many years with the World Economic Forum. And while the two formal political parties seem to be pulling apart, there are signs that um, at, at least the administrative side of government, the uh, White House and beyond, and business, actually, they are finding common ground in certain issues, climate change, for example. I, I agree with that. And so what do you see in the way of the future of private sector, public sector collaboration to make for a better country and a better world? Well, just as we've learned that no one person can solve all these problems, you've got to do it with collaboration and groups. I think it's, it's apparent now increasingly to the business sector and what the business roundtable has been doing yep. in, in recent weeks, trying to figure out how they can make a real difference. And I was just with a, a major figure from Deloitte uh, the other day, and he pointed out, if you really want talent to come work for your company these days, increasingly the younger generation is insisting that you do good in the world as a company before they're going to work for you. 
you know, you may be very successful at making money, but they want to know, are you successful at doing good for the country? They don't, they want to feel proud of where they're working. And so I think that's good. And I think the business community is coming around to this. This, this project that I, is something called Project 101. It's, it's to create, it's, it's a 10, over 10 years to create a million jobs a year of, of African-Americans. Uh, and I think Jamie Dimon is behind that. They're a group of good people in a business roundtable. So I'm, in, I'm increasingly uh, optimistic that what we saw back in 2008, 2009, the greed we saw that led into the collapse and the recession, it's not what we're seeing in the business sector now. Yep. I think it's. I think we've got a better quality business sector. I don't. You know, some there's some of Jim Collins mixed in that about being the humility factor is good. You get a guy like Alan Malali. Uh, you know, you you know this community better than I do, but that's yep. my impression from afar. All right, David. A, a kind of a, a final general question before we begin to do our summing up. Imagine you are finishing your baseball career. Everything's <laughs> ahead of you, or. Imagine you're speaking now, you are speaking now to people who might be 15, maybe 20 years old, 25, thinking about their future. And a question that has come up from our 45 minutes discussion with you just now in my head is how did you become you? And what are some of the steps that you took along the way that others might replicate if they would like to have a life in public service as you have? Um. I've, I've made a lot of mistakes along the way and um, uh, there are regrets I have. I said, well, it's not like trying to stop bad things. It's regrets I have. And my biggest advice right now to a 25-year-old is as you climb the slippery pole and as you serve, also remember your family. Take, take, take time out for your kids. Take time out for the rest. Yeah. And I didn't do that enough with my kids. And, um, you know, I'm trying to make, up, make it up through grandkids now. But nonetheless... <laughs> Uh, I, I, I think it's really important that if, if I, I once took a group of uh, HKS, Kennedy School students to Washington and we saw then Senator Barack Obama and kids asked him, what, what advice do you have for us at 25? And he said, don't try to plan out your life, you know, position by position, because it'll never, you'll, it'll never work out that way. Find your passion and work on what you really care about and the jobs will come to you. And, and that's what I've discovered. And I, I don't think I've sought a job that I can remember, but there was always somebody out there saying, why don't you try this or try that? And then, then you, and that's, why, that's why I think you need, a person needs to, the character, coming back all the way back to the character issue, people aren't gonna hire you unless, they, unless you've got a good reputation these days. Yep. And, they, and they wanna do the word of mouth. They wanna check you out on social media. Uh, and it, it, the, the character you display makes a big difference in whether a they want you, and the character they display is whether whether you want them. David, your point we're going to more or less end on it now for, uh, for this show. Um, yeah. It's very well taken, and many of our guests have said as much, often in, in different words. But several people have most immediately said, or most clearly said that you better love what you're doing because you're going to do a lot of it. <laughs> so, okay. That's a good line. I like that. Isn't that, isn't that good? And yep. it, it does make the point. Okay. Uh, I think it's wrap-up time. And I think the way we're going to do it tonight, Anne, is I'm going to start with you and then I'm going to bring me in. And then, David, you're going to get the final word 
of what we like our listeners, or at least what we really want to hang yeah. on to that our listeners might want yeah. to hang on to as well. Sure. And what have you got? All right, I'm ready. Well, I'm going to pick up where David left off, and that's on the importance of character. And I'm going to add, it's important to have self-awareness, know who yep. you are. Even more important is to know how other people see you. What is yeah. your reputation? And if I may just add, I'm going to just keep in mind the importance of the power of resignation and mm. to give away and let go of power. That's what ultimately made George Washington so great. I'm also going to be modest, uh, mindful in my modest role uh, in the Wharton School about the importance of stopping things. <laughs> Very important, a leadership action, which I think uh, I need to give a little more attention to. <laughs> I love it. We all need a stop it list. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I like it. All right, David and Ann, here are my three thoughts. Going back to what David has said, first of all, you got to know what you're doing. So be really informed, whatever it is, get up to speed, know the facts. Number two, people have to trust you. And of course, it's only you who can build that trust. So that's a, a lifelong task, but very important. And then number three, uh, the role of uh, the role of us, so the role of everybody who carries any responsibility for anything is to bring out the best in people so they can give the best to whatever enterprise you're part of. So David, over to you, final thoughts here. Final thoughts. Well, most of what you need to know, you will find in Mike's new book. Uh, the, <laughs> okay, David, coming, thank coming, you. Coming, coming out this summer. Uh, but I will just add one, one other thought. Uh, and that is I run into people all the time now who are very anxious about the future of the country. Yeah, they're, they're worried we're, we've, we've just gotten ourselves all wound up in, in a mess and it's gonna be hard to get out. There's so much anger and so much poison. I, I happen to be a short-term pessimist. I, I do think we're gonna have a rough patch here in the next three, four, five, six years. And we, we, we just have to hold together to get through it. But don't give up on the country. Don't, you know, Eisenhower used to say, never write off America, never bet against America. We have been resilient. Time and again, we've been hit by really hard things, maybe four maybe existential problems or threats, whether the founding of the Republic, and we almost went under the Civil War, World War II, and, and the Great Depression. And we came out of all of those pretty well, with the exception of the, of the, of the war itself, but we eventually bounced back. So remember, we're resilient. And the second reason, and the big reason why I'm, I'm much more hopeful is the quality of the people who are coming up. This, these next generations, especially millennials and Generation Z we've been talking about, they really do hold the key to our future. And I think in many ways, um, they're, they're the most important portion, important part of this puzzle that we need to spend more time on. Um, and, and Wharton, I can see why now, uh, talking to Mike and Ann, I'm increasingly appreciative of all you do here at Wharton, but I, I just want to thank you for generally, I'm glad with your leadership center, I've been admiring that for, uh, admire for a long time, but thank you for the opportunity to also uh, come and talk with you. David, it's been our privilege to have you. We want to thank you, of course, and also Elizabeth Vale of the Fells Institute yeah. for helping to arrange your visit with us today. Want to thank our producer, Patty Hall, our sound engineer, Chris Tuke. I'm Mike Yusim with Ann Greenhall, and you've been listening to Leadership in Action, business radio powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Come back next week. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. Oh,